Hello, you're listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast with me, Susan Romsdorf-Terry, and... Luke Romsdorf-Terry, where we read a book from the Cat Who Mystery series and discuss it. And on today's episode, we are talking about the 29th book in the series, The Cat Who Had 60 Whiskers. And this is the 29th and last book in the series as well. It is the end, the end of many eras, because let's remember that she's been writing these books for 50 years. Quite at some time. And of course, this is also, uh, yeah, the last book, like we said, the last book, when was this published? 2007. And then she passed away four years later. She passed away four years later. Um, The intent was to release The Cat Who Smelled Smoke, which was to be the final book uh, in 2008. It was pushed back to 2009. In 2010, it was announced that the book would never be released. And there was no reason given behind that. No actual reason. I have found some. What is the, what you have found? I'm curious. Well, actually, no, let's save let's, that for the let's retrospect. You're right. End. Let's save that for the retrospect. Not even the retrospect. Let's just save that to the end of this. No, fair enough. Uh, let's th- get, let, let's get through this last <laughs> book. And I think with, uh, as per everything, spoilers ahead. So <laughs> now That's debatable. let's, wow. Okay. I, I'm, I'm saying be prepared. This is Game of Thrones level series finale. Right. So, uh, <laughs> the biggest thing that I say is it has to be remembered that this is meant to be the penultimate book in the series but due to various circumstances the final book was never released and so this is important to keep in mind because there are several storylines that are not resolved so the book opens with a slightly flirty exchange between quill and dr connie regarding coco's 60 whiskers she threatens to count them during coco's next dental exam and he promises to take her to dinner if he's wrong He's not wrong, but you get the impression he'll take her to dinner regardless. He's looking for an excuse to take her to dinner. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So through the winter, we've had pizza parties, which have become the thing in the Willows condos at Indian Village, led by Joe Bunker slash Weatherby Good. Um, That's kind of been their standard Sunday afternoon get together with the four people who live in the Willows. Um, Dr. Connie has now acquired her own cat, which she said was a goal. Uh, It is a marmalade like Dundee, uh, Uh like Dundee, the bookstore cat, although hers is named Bonnie Lassie. (laughs) <laughs> Remember that Dr. Connie goes back and forth to uh, to Scotland once a year because she did her uh, she did her vet school in Edinburgh. That's right. Yes. So that's right. Should be mentioned that Bonnie Lassie now brings the total number of felines in the building to six. <laughs> As I mentioned, uh, she got back from a visit to Scotland because she went to vet school in Edinburgh. So they have a very Bonnie Scots theme to their party. Um, Hixie Rice is apparently the topic of conversation because after the Pickaxe Future Parade, a.k.a. 4th of July, was rained out by a northern hurricane, vandals bombed the city city hall flower boxes. And the vandals never got resolved. Never got resolved. That still is irritating me. Still is out there. Um, But they bombed the flower boxes that she worked so very hard to get installed. Uh So as an afterthought, her love life is mentioned as an equal disaster to a bombing that she had nothing to do with. (laughs) Uh, and now they're concerned about her involvement in a contest to name the new senior center. Lay off, Hixie. Good Lord. She's been, she has been through enough. She has been through far too much. Far too much going on. So the next speaker for the Pickaxe Lit Club has been announced. It's an expert on Proust, um, apparently from Lockmaster, although that gets confused um, later on. But uh, Polly asked Quill if he would be kind enough to put the speaker up for the night. Um as we know at this point, since the cat who went bananas, uh, Coco has been still making aerial attacks on allurophobes, so he says yes conditionally. The speaker must like Maybe. cats. Um, turns out the speaker is an allurophile, so it's also all is well on that front, at least. Um, later, back at the bar, remember, Quill was only kind of at the at the Willows temporarily while that hurricane was going, so that he would go back to the barn once, you know, it was it was safe. Ah, uh, yes. Um, because Weatherby told him go to the uh, go to Indian Village because if you get you know if the power goes out uh, nobody's going to be able to get to you because your roads are mud. <laughs> so Quill is Quill you know he's been visiting with his Willow's friend but he's back at the barn. Okay then we get a call from Judd Amherst who is formerly a resident of the now destroyed Hibbert House and now the current events manager for the bookstore. Who, tell, who calls to tell Quill the winning name for the Senior Center, which will be in a renovated grain storage building downtown known locally as the Old Hulk. I'm going to point out this is the first time we have heard of the Old Hulk. Old Hulk, um, as this is described, it's supposed to be something that's been 
you know, a fixture on the pickaxe cityscape. And it's like, we've never heard of this. We're 29 books in. I was going to say, but yet uh, in the past 28 books, it just didn't bother bearing any kind of mention. Yeah, nothing. Um, So the new name for the senior center is good for the body, is senior center. Good for the body, good for the mind, good for the spirit. (laughs) Somehow I thought this would be more catchy. Um, You'd think, you'd think, you would think. Um, what is interesting as they're putting together the senior center, um, way back in the cat who said cheese, there was a date auction and Quill's time ago. um, It feels like it. Um, but there was a date auction and Quill's date was won by the manager of the something, Sarah Plensdorf, Mm -hmm. who possessed a table with two legs replaced by a sculpture of a life-size basset hound. Now that table was donated to the heirloom auction in the previous book. The cat had dropped a bombshell and sold for over $10,000 before being shipped somewhere down below. Um, <laughs> now, however, the table is back and being donated to the senior center. What? Really what this means is that Quill bought the table. Quill bought the damn table. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it, he no longer has, now that there's the senior center, he can donate it. Um, and get that tax write off. Exactly. Not that he needs it. It should be mentioned, Hixie has a fabulous idea. Because they have a table with a life-size basset hound, she wants to commission a life-sized cat lamp to sit on the table. Now, this is a brilliant idea, except when she crosses the line and tries to say, suggest that Coco should model for it. Oh, not Co- going to happen. Coco's not going to sit still for that. No, nope. no, no, no. Now, the next morning, Quill gets a call from Lisa Compton about a collection of used books from Purple Point that he might be interested in. They're pocket-sized editions of classic stories. Hmm. This is right up Quill's alley. He's thrilled, heads to ESP immediately. And we learn that Lisa is leaving her volunteer position at uh, ESP, which is the Eddington Smith place, in case you didn't remember, mm-hmm. um, for a paid position running the new senior center. Oh, my. She'll be perfect. Quill tells her so. And shortly after that, um, Bart, our favorite attorney, comes to the barn. <laughs> and he talks with Quill about some of the issues surrounding the transformation of the Leadfields Mansion, the old manse, as it's called, into mm-hmm. a museum. And we learned the names of their two secretaries who are still being kept very busy after their deaths. We have Daisy Babcock and Alma Lee James, which is suspiciously similar to Carter Lee James in The Cat Who Tailed the Thief, but apparently no relation. Daisy handles the financials. Alma Lee handles the collections because her parents run an art gallery and Lockmaster apparently gives her great clout. Well, of course. Um, Daisy, it turns out, is married to one of the Linguini sons whose restaurant has closed. Remember the <laughs> Linguini's way, way back. In the early days of Pickaxe had a wonderful Italian restaurant where you ate whatever Mrs. Linguini felt like serving. Yes. And Mr. Linguini would pop out and say, happy birthday to you. Um, it was very sweet. He was Polish? Italian. Thanks. Just... <laughs> he was European in nature. That's <laughs> fine. We'll just say that. Fine. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, the restaurant has closed so the sons can run a party store um, and fight the zoning committee. Uh, more of a uh, come in here and buy you and buy your wine and liquor and and all of your snacks. They also do deliveries, which I think is really cool. Um, <laughs> Party on wheels delivery. But they fight. also are fighting zoning committees to get permission to grow grapes and run their own vineyard. Mm. Now, according to gossip, the original Mister Linguini has been growing grapes and serving his own wine for years, but he never tried to sell it outside his own restaurant. So now they actually need the zoning committee to approve it so that they can run a, a vineyard. Huh. Um. Daisy apparently was a favorite of the late Mr. Leadfield, and she apparently resents being demoted, quote unquote, to secondary secretary, although Alma Lee is the one with the museum gallery experience. Um, the general consensus is that Daisy is the more congenial of the two, while Alma Lee is more mercurial. <laughs> also, Bart has an aunt called Alma who would let his cousins break his toys, so he's disinclined to like her based on the name uh, alone. Just based on that alone, Fair yeah, enough. by association. Um, Despite that, he suggests that Quill do the political thing um, and work primarily with Alma with the uh, with, with the investiture of the museum. And so a visit to the barn is arranged for Alma. Uh, Quill delivers his column for the week, learns that Clarissa Moore, who started in The Cat Who Dropped a Bombshell, a.k.a. the last book, has all of a sudden <laughs> gone home to Indiana with no warning. Like Arch kind of- and Jr. are seriously pissed because they gave her a lot of breaks for a newbie fresh out of, out of uh, journalism school. And now they're down to future writer. Um, apparently, uh, Jill Hadley is still on maternity leave, so Quill suggests having local notables write guest features to fill the space till Jill is back. Um, although when Junior asks him to set up some of the columns, he claims that as a columnist, he doesn't do setup. 
<laughs> Ideas only. Amateurs like you do set up, yeah. but professionals like me, no. Ideas only. Um, <laughs> after this lovely, uh, after this lovely encounter, Quill then visits Maggie Sprinkle, asks her opinion on Leadfield secretaries, and while she agrees that Amelie should be consulted, uh, Maggie considers her "quote unquote" starchy. And thinks that Daisy will be more amenable to Quill's uh, article on the history of the Leadfield House, which he ends up not writing, but, you know, it's there. Um, and then Maggie mentions a third secretary who handles the family's private matters, Libby Sims, whose parents worked for the Leadfields and died when she was seven. So the Leadfields found a family for her to live with and paid for her schooling and then hired her as their personal secretary when she finished school. So many secretaries. So many secretaries. Hmm. Apparently, though, their their money has just been kind of collecting for the last hundred and fifty years. So, gotcha. Um, they they apparently didn't lose anything in the in the crash of nineteen twenty, hmm. and um, for whatever reason, off huh. you went. So they're still uh, soluble. They're still well, not soluble. They're still quite wealthy. We just have a terrible thought. Which was because, as Trekkie Monster <laughs> tells us yep. in Avenue Q, in volatile market, only stable investment, investment is porn. porn. Sorry, that was probably a little bit inappropriate, especially for these books. But it's the only thing I can think of that probably <laughs> wouldn't have lost money in the in in the crash, um, or through the nineteen seventies, or through any of the early two thousands crashes as well. Well, and the only one that uh, that does pay of that though is liquor tends to be recession proof mm. as well too. But we all know what happened in the nineteen twenties. Yes, and so. but it's not necessary. Yeah, between the nineteen twenties and and several other things, you can get me going for ages on liquor. <laughs> um, which is why I think porn. Um, no, I think porn, exactly. Because it's, it's the oldest profession for a reason. Mm -hmm. And it's always going to be something that people are willing to pay for. Exactly. Willing to pay for and want to get. Anyway. Um, this has been the porn, this has been the cat who, <laughs> the cat who looked at porn, our, our spinoff podcast. God, that sounds like one of the terrible, um, terrible fake titles from the, uh, from, from the parody. Oh God, that parody. <laughs> that parody anyway. was terrible. Still. It's anyway, bad. anyway, moving on, please. Yes, Quill yes, yes, makes sorry. an appointment with uh, Daisy to be shown the house on a day that Alma isn't there, claiming a deadline. Um, Coco is still obsessed with the box of books from Purple Point, and Quill thinks it might contain some items bought by the lead bought from the Leadfields, which might explain Coco's fascination. Um, because we find out that items are being sold from Nathan's personal collection to benefit child welfare. Hmm. Now, this sends me off in a million tangents with this, which we never quite get resolved. Um, the first being, was Nathan not the devoted husband that he seemed? Or is this just for general child welfare? Um, was, were they really just that determined to see that no child should be familyless? Mm -hmm. That is, uh, is, a, is, a wonderful, is a wonderful notion. I tend to go a little bit more salacious. I'm not going to lie. So it's the welfare of his own child because he's, as you say, not necessarily a devoted husband. But we have no idea. It never gets it never gets resolved. So just child welfare. Child in welfare general. in general. Um, well, Quill that... doesn't have time to ponder this as much because he does think about it. Um, because then Coco <laughs> gets his attention. There's another fire downtown. Uh oh. And it's the old Hulk. Oh no! It's the building that would have been the new senior center. Ruffians. Yes, that is the word she used. From Bixby County are suspected. <laughs> These Athens. are the same ruffians that are suspected of bombing City Hall. Athens, a ruffian. Indeed. Now, the city is in shock at this point. Sure, the building was an eyesore, but it's their eyesore. Even though funds for the senior center are readily available to build from scratch, it just, it rankles that the buildings and the civic improvements that are being done are being targeted like this. Um, so the city's upset, but Quill moves on to the old man's. He heads out to the famous mansion, finds it actually very similar to the description in Hawthorne's book, hmm. from which it very likely gets its name. There are stone columns, gray brick, prison-like front door, and on the inside, a crystal chandelier and a stairway as big as the bridge over the River Kwai. Probably not actually that part in the uh, author description. But that's Cole's description of what it looks like when they get inside. Interesting. So it doesn't necessarily match this idea is a fluttery woman in a bright pink pantsuit, which is our Daisy Babcock, nay, well, Daisy, nay Babcock, married name Linguini. There you go. Uh, she shows him around the house, which is filled with antiques, a glorious music studio, and four poster beds in every suite. And then she also shows him the box bank, a room filled with boxes used in buying and selling their collectible, collectible items. Apparently, this is a great honor. Um, it's only shown to family, and make with that what you will. Why? I, I don't understand. Why she's deciding to show this to Quill, who knows? Or why you would show it to anybody when you have a giant room full of boxes. Why? Why does anyone care? Well, some people juggle geese. 
uh, you know, it's true. Um, so after this, uh, a young woman in denim whispers something to Daisy and then dashes away. Daisy calls her the office manager, asks what the doctor said, because apparently the said young woman was apparently stung by a bee in the garden that morning. Uh, noting that the same young woman was Nathan's protege, it is apparent that this is the mysterious Libby Sims, whose uh, uh, family our, that they've been supporting. Our third secretary. Indeed. Uh, changing the subject from this, Quill invites Daisy to join her husband when he makes a delivery to the barn from the party store the next day so she can meet Coco and see the barn. Well, she good. likes cats. It's all good. <laughs> um, later, Quill calls Polly to tell her about the visit, and she says that Amelie will be furious if she finds out that Daisy got to visit the barn first. Oh, jeez. Um, which is a good prediction. Uh, Quill mentions then the office manager and the bee sting, um, and then we're reminded that the sting is also how Maggie Sprinkle's husband died. Mm. Um it's also a popular way to kill characters at this point in time because it's also used as big spoiler alert, big spoiler alert, um, in the Bridgerton books to kill the father. Well, no need to see season two, three. Or... No, just two, no two is where it becomes a big deal. Um, <laughs> see, I thought you were going to spoil something for the, uh, well, now I got to put in the show notes, Bridgerton spoilers, weirdly enough, but yes. <laughs> just to ye be warned, but the way you're describing it, it was like a spoiler heading up for the rest of the, what what could have been the the thirtieth uh, book? Yeah, no, 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 no. This is a spoiler alert for something completely unrelated um, <laughs> that you would have no reason to think that would be spoiled in here. But in case you haven't read the Bridgerton books, yeah, the father dies of a bee sting, which is why I find it so weird that they have a bee as a giant theme throughout the whole episode. He died from that. Why would you use it? I'm sorry. Thank you for letting me. Shonda, that out. I have questions. So many, so <laughs> many. Anyway. Can take that out entirely if we want to. Uh, um, we're going to keep it in. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the next day, Daisy shows up with her husband to, uh, to make the delivery. His name is Fredo, which is, yes, of course, short for, for Alfredo. <laughs> um, they make their delivery. She's awed by the barn. She loves Coco and Yum Yum. Um, and then Fredo also offers to have his brother Nick show Quill around the vineyard anytime. Short um, for Nicocini. It never no, actually it's, says. It's not, that's uh, he's joke. just Nick. You have Nick and Fredo. We know that it's short for Alfredo. We have no idea what Nick is short because there are 30 billion names. It could Niccolo, Dominic. Niccolo, Dominic. No, you're right. I mean, uh, who knows? Anyway, so Quill now has the option to go look around a real vineyard, which he thinks is really exciting. Um, and then later in the afternoon, Bart brings Amelie by the barn for a brief visit, and it still feels too long. Um, because one of the first things that she asks when she arrives is she points at the, at, at the gazebo and says, is that where the guest shot himself? Referring to Lush yep. from the mm -hmm. cat who went bananas. Jeez. Oh, um, so or, is she basically or the cat who talked turkey? Excuse so me. So the way that you're describing her, is she basically the chorus girl from white Christmas. Who's got that grading like, ah, surely we're going to um, be mutual. I'm sure. Yes. Yes. That's it. Yes. Uh, no, because her. she's meaner than that. Oh, no. Um, so we, we've got the first thing that she asks is, is that where somebody shot themselves? Mm -hmm. um, and then she complains about his lack of small art objects in the house because obviously she does not own cats. Um, she then suggests that what will really make the space pop is large vases filled with flowers. Um, and of course, suggests that he buy something from the Leadfield collection. But once again, cats. Right. Um, she and Bart finally leave with Bart literally dragging her at the door um, because Quill claims he has to meet a deadline. But then she hands him a leather bound book for the Leadfield collection, noting the red stickered items have already been sold. Um, she then mentions that the most valuable item has already been sold to another family on Purple Point. So why even Because, dear God, this woman is awful. <laughs> now, I cannot decide if this is a legitimate inability to process social cues or whether she was just born pushy and money focused. Can't tell. Hmm. Turns out the most valuable item that she mentioned is an 18th century Chinese punch bowl. Um, not actually a punch bowl. That was just what the British called it, um, which was sold to <laughs> Lisa's rich cousins on Purple Point, which arrived in a box from the Leadfield Mansion, which they then used to send books to the ESP, which is how the box got to the barn, which Coco has been fascinated with. Coco is making some giant, leap, giant leaps here to tell us this is important for whatever reason. Huh. We don't know. But we don't know. We don't know. And we're not going to find out, are we? It, it, this one I don't remember. I, I, Ooh, there's Lord. so many things that don't get resolved. I oh, truly do God. not remember. No. This is why I write everything down. <laughs> um, so Quill goes out to uh, to try and write about the Linguini Vineyard. 
And it's pointed out, ostensibly by Polly, that Quill has a bad habit of pre-writing a story and being disappointed when the actual story doesn't match up to his imagined version. Hmm. Um, a story on the old man, you know, when he says he was going to write an article about the old manse, um, it fell victim to this. He decides that it's more suited to just the feature writers, whoever's writing about the museums. Um, and it's certainly implied that his story on the vineyard is very likely to go the same way. Drives out the following Saturday. It's a non-story. It's not really explained why they don't really explain anything. Mm -hmm. um, but we do get some excellent gossip <laughs> because we find out that money is going missing from the Leadfield accounts. Oh. That punch bowl sold for $60,000. But according to Libby, there is no record of the money in anyone's accounts huh. for the Leadfields. So Fredo and Nick think that Daisy should quit before she gets caught in uh, whatever monkey business, they call, as they call it, is going on. <laughs> and it's, it, it's implied that Alma Lee is likely the source of said monkey business. Coco agrees, by the way. When Quo returns, the leather-bound catalog has been shredded. Oh. <laughs> Red items and all. Yes. <laughs> there is then a trip to Grandma's Sweet Shop. Down on uh, down uh, down by the bookstore, um, which is presided over, we are noted by a real grandma. Um, <laughs> this leads to a meeting with Hannah and Uncle Louis McLeod and their adopted son Danny, all from the cat to, uh, to oh, the cat who went up the creek. Mm -hmm. um, they chat with Quill, tell them they're casting for cats. Uh, Quill declines to play Old Deuteronomy. <laughs> he doesn't get to tell everybody that a dog is not a cat. Uh, yeah, cat is not a dog. A cat. I am sorry. <laughs> I am so sorry. I anyway, am not the jellical choice. No, clearly not. Um, they're then mentioning that they have to rent Frankie James from Lockmaster because their rehearsal pianist left town for unknown reasons. Um, Frankie, it turns out, is managed, quote unquote, by his family so that people don't take advantage of him because he can sight read anything perfectly. So he's very in demand, but he doesn't drive and he can't be trusted with money. <laughs> um, it's implied that he's related to Amelie with the mention of an overpriced antique store, not really an art gallery, but maybe that's Hannah's mix up. Um, so there, there's that connection kind of hanging over thing. Danny then mentions that he has a girlfriend, which is when Hannah hustles him out the door. Hmm, who's his girlfriend? <laughs> Gotta wonder. Gotta wonder. Mm. <laughs> uh, that night we have a call with Polly about the non-story of the vineyard, after which Quill asks her to dinner, suggesting that they pay the new management of the grist mill Remember that since Liz died, they had to sell it and have it managed by somebody locally. Um, but he suggests that they pay the new management the compliment, uh, quote unquote, of their dressing up. Uh, Polly declines because it turns out she's going to Lockmaster to be a surprise guest for her friend Shirley's 60th birthday party. Um, Shirley, by the way, is uh, the former librarian turned bookstore owner down in Lockmaster, uh, who's mm. been Polly's friend. Um, and Shirley is... As I put it in a previous episode, um, the uh, the breeding source of the uh, hollow-legged demon cat named Bootsy. Oh, yes. That's <laughs> right. It's, it's now known as Brutus. <laughs> uh, anyway, so she says Quill is, of course, invited, but he won't like the company. They play, quote-unquote, guessing games. Quill supports this idea because he really doesn't like them and says, well, I'll just take Rhoda Tippett to dinner instead. At which point, Polly gets frosty and the call ends. Ugh. Quill wonders if she remembers that Rhoda is Homer Tibbetts, 89-year-old widow. Well, of course she does, you moron. She just doesn't like the idea of being replaced quite so cavalierly. <laughs> like, you could have waited to make that decision until you were off the phone with her? Not talking, yes, not talking about it while, uh, while on the phone. Yep, exactly. So <laughs> after that frosty... She's right there, dude. Yeah, it's like after that frosty reception, Quill, it should be mentioned, does not take Rhoda to the gristmill. Um, he takes her to the more casual Tipsy's Tavern. They reminisce about Homer. Um, Rhoda talks about how she always had a crush on him way back when she was a teacher because he was so well-dressed and treated the teachers in a very nice, courtly manner. How uh, old was Quill at this point? Oh, Homer. Sorry. I no, got... no, no. They're talking about Homer. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. I thought, we're talking about, I thought you were talking about Rhoda suddenly having a crush on Quill. No, no, no. Like, they're reminiscing about Homer. Okay, that so remember that, that Rhoda was a teacher when Homer was principal. Yes, of no, the that okay, that makes much more yes. sense because anyway. it was going. Is this a reverse Lolita situation here, no, no, or no. is this what is going no. on? Uh, so anyway, so she's down in Lockmaster after she retires, and then she finds she's a little shocked to find her former principal crawling around uh, old houses in his retirement, plugging mouse holes. Which, by the way, <laughs> is how we first meet Homer back in the cat who played post office because he's plugging the mouse holes at the K mansion. Uh, now right. the K Theater. Uh -huh. uh, we also learned that Homer is responsible for changing the Midnight Marchers uh, 
mission. Now, the Midnight Marchers, in case anybody remotely remember, resemble, remember, in case anybody remotely resembles. Just in case anyone happens to remember these in people. In case anybody actually remembers the Midnight Marchers. <laughs> this is way back in the Cat Who Talked to Ghosts. Oh, that's a um, long time ago. Yeah, this this is quite a while, a while ago. A while ago. A while ago. A while ago. Um, <laughs> I swear I have not had that much. No, that you've not. This is, <laughs> I think it's just the anticipation of this being the last, last book, book and the excitement of everything. Anyway, back to the Midnight Marchers. So <laughs> I'm going to get this out or I'm going to be really tangled up. Um, so the Midnight Marchers is a society that dress up in old mining gear and march at midnight on a certain day of the year to mourn the miners killed in the Goodwinter mine explosion caused by the greedy Goodwinters, um, who, who failed to provide safety, uh, who failed to provide any kind of safety, uh, any kind of safety measures. Guidelines, recommendations. Measures. Measures. Um, measures. Now we met this in the cat who talked to ghosts. Uh, Homer talks about being terrified by seeing the ghostly miners, um, but as time progressed, apparently they they morphed from this memorial society to a beer drinking society. <laughs> um, but they've now morphed into a charitable society, a okay. secret charitable society. And at the behest of Nathan Ledfield, their primary cause is orphans. Oh, That's interesting. Very nice. That is very good. And much more noble. Not that drinking beer is not good. Drinking but... beer is perfectly noble. But from but... The, but considering what started this. Let's do some good. Yes, this is a much better use of your time and energy. And money. Exactly. Now, Polly isn't home Sunday morning, and Joe, such whether be good, calls to find out why he's being asked to feed her cats. And it bothers Quill that he doesn't know, because, of course, Polly didn't freaking call him. Hmm. Um, so Quill goes to lunch in Indian Village at Mildred's, and Hixie is there, and Quill and Arch entertain the women with stories of their misspent youth. Polly doesn't come home till very late that night, and Joe once again calls to let Quill know because apparently she's exhausted and wired, and Quill made her, and Joe made her go to bed. Um, and she calls later that night after she's had a nap and says she'll tell him the news at dinner the next day. You're Jeez. going to make him wait another twelve Hang hours. On. God, seriously, woman? No, more than twelve hours. But anyway, uh, since it's Monday, the dinner turns out to be a catered supper in the gazebo from Celia Robinson. Uh -huh. um, Polly recounts the evening of bad food, stupid guessing games, and really rags on the Palomino paddock decor as if they both haven't eaten there like dozens of times over these books. We know it's decorated like a stable, but the food is always described to be very elegant and very good. And apparently on this time, it was just bad. Hmm. Um, I mean, everyone, it can't always be perfect, I guess, but... Yes. With that, she also discusses the parallels between the Pirate's Chest and Best Books, which is the Lockbuster bookstore that uh, Shirley runs, which has 100 years of history, um, including a drunken back room, and then she finally gets to the point of this excitement. There's actually kind of a fun little side story about Best Books and and how it morphed from um, from from being a secret drinking society to being an actual good bookstore. Um, but here's the point. Shirley's son and the board of directors for their bookstore, since Shirley has managed in the last couple of years to completely turn around the store's profit margin with her uh, energy, enthusiasm, and her uh, influx of programs that have brought people into the bookstore, so their profits are through the roof. So the son and the board of directors are sending Shirley to Paris with a guest. And that guest is Polly. Ooh. All expenses paid. Cats are off to the pet plaza. Judd Amherst will manage the, uh, the pirate's chest while she's gone. And that's that. Um, Quill then immediately starts a mental list of all the men she'll meet. She's met while traveling. Jeez. And he's really annoyed at who she might meet in Paris. Jesus. But he gets his emotions in check. And he buys Polly and Shirley some very nice uh, parting gifts of very expensive trench coats and wide-brimmed uh, rain hats as going-away presents. Sending them to, off to be pi private eyes. <laughs> yes. Well, Carol Landspeak, unkind, which is very unlike her, but Carol Landspeak unkindly remarks that they're going to look like the Bobsy twins <laughs> wandering around in Paris. Um, he then makes plans with Lisa to present a lecture on private journaling once the senior center opens and otherwise goes about his days. Um, he does visit Lockmaster to chat with Kip and Moira and learns that um, it's not just Polly and Shirley. Uh, they will be accompanied by a travel agent that Kip refers to as an old roué, um, <laughs> who is going along to, as he says, make sure they have the best of everything. 
Well, that's um, above and beyond service. Well, okay. <laughs> Best of every meet. Too. Indeed. Jeez. He also runs into the new Lockmaster librarian, who is a devotee of art hats, and she's thrilled to learn that Thelma Thackeray's hats, but this is back in the cat who brought down the house, uh, the hats were photographed before they were destroyed. Um, so they make plans to continue a book that was in the work before the hats sank in the mud, and they, they talk about doing a photo exhibit between the two places. Hmm. Meanwhile, Polly is in preparation frenzy. Quill is completely ignored. And he's mm, not happy about this it. This is not going to go well. In her preparation, she arranges for Joe, Bunker, Weatherby Good, to visit the cats at the pet plaza while she's gone. Uh, Dr. Connie, her neighbor, will handle plants and mail, which makes sense. But it hasn't been mentioned how long this trip is. Once the ladies are, but eventually they, they finally get everything packed. The ladies take off and finally Quill relaxes because it's stressful to be ignored that Pointedly. I yes, exactly. And I can you know, you get the the release of it all, but still, how long are they gonna be gone for? Never it really isn't mentioned. Um in the meantime, though, yeah, yeah, he yeah. he writes an absurdist play for Kip McDermott called The Cat Who Got Elected Dog Catcher. Um and, and they actually Gene Ionesco's The Cat Who Got Elected Dog Catcher. It is literally written in Ionesco style. Oh, they God. print it in the book. I could read it, but I don't think anybody has that time. No, thanks. I hate it. Please don't. Great. I'm sorry. There's absurd. There's absurdist. There's stuff, but just Ionesco always rubbed me the wrong way. Where it was just you're just being weird for weird's sake, and not even weird to be interesting. Exactly. It's just uh rhinoceros or uh ball soprano or whatever the one with the chairs. It's just it doesn't matter. I think it's just um, called chairs. Anyway. Anyway. So anyway, so there's that. He also works on a biography of Homer Tibbet gets a delivery from the Linguinis and learns that Libby Sims is Frankie, the piano player's girlfriend. Gossip, gossip, gossip. (laughs) Libby, it it is apparent, has recovered from her bee string, but she is supposed to take a medical kit with her whenever she goes into the garden at the house. I'm assuming that this means an EpiPen. Um, Despite these precautions, Coco then sounds his death howl. Uh And according to Brody, when Quill calls around to find out what might have happened, somebody recently died from a bee sting. Uh Uh-oh. Um... Quill then attends rehearsals for Cats, and he learns that the victim was, in fact, Libby. Mm. Daisy, who is also a member of the production, tells Quill that she tried everything to get Libby to remember the kit, even getting her a jacket in her favorite color with pockets to carry it in. Um, And with Libby's death, uh, Daisy finally agrees that she has to get away from the old man's. Mm. Then we get a letter from Polly. She's enjoying Paris. And in a moment that she thinks is terribly funny, she was mistaken for a native by another tourist while wearing her coat and hat from Landspeaks. I kind of understand that she thinks this is hysterical because it is really funny Jeez. that anyone would think that she was a native Parisian in a matching hat and coat from Landspeak's <laughs> department store. That's one of the Bobsy twins. Anyway, <laughs> we have a visit from Vivian, the Lockmaster librarian, who visits the barn, tries to convince Quill to move to Lockmaster, followed by trying to convince him to put a grand piano in the barn. Um, the freeze would kill it. The cats mm. would attack it. Um, Quill then suggests that the piano that she's mentioning, which is an heirloom, of course, um, be donated to the new music center from the Leadfields. And then they brainstorm for an exhibition of the photos of Thelma's hats, suggest that Daisy handled the day-to-day running of the exhibition since she's finally leaving the Leadfield collections to manage the community buildings. Meanwhile, postcards arrive from Polly. Quill has other commitments. And when Mildred asks him how Polly is, he responds, Polly who? Oh, oh. Rude. Oh. life without her seems so much more fulfilling for Quill. It really does. Oh my God. <laughs> Later, Fredo stops by with a delivery for Quill as a thank you for getting Daisy out her new job at the community center. He implies that what happened to Libby was a crime and not in the metaphorical sense. It sounds like Amelie might be a little bit more villainous than first appeared. She's not just possibly stealing money. She might have actually tried to kill somebody Hmm. and succeeded. Um, Quill then also makes the connection between Libby's death and Maggie Sprinkle's husband's death, both from bee stings. Are they connected somehow? There's, There's an implication in here that... Maggie's husband might have been Libby's actual father. Um, there there have been hints that Jeremy has been less than the sweet husband that Maggie thinks he is. Huh. But this is never followed up on, so we just assume that two just, bee stings, two bee, two stings connected to the Leadfield family, whatever. Meh, um, that's meh. Yeah. Meanwhile, that community hall that we mentioned, Quill is arranging for that to be renamed in honor of Homer Tibbet. Um, he does, however, discourage an, another community group from using Coco as a mascot to promote cats in the cemeteries, as inspired by one of Polly's postcards. Well, you know, Coco's so good at just uh, at 
sending cats to the cemetery or uh, announcing when they're going to be in the cemetery. Announcing when people are going to be in the cemetery. Yes, uh, people, not cats. So Usually people. Um, Makes a little bit of sense. There's an accident. Polly and Shirley are hit by a speeding car in Paris at the Pont d'Alma. Oh, where? Yeah, where Princess Di was killed. Jeez. Uh, But let's also point out Pont d'Alma. Alma. Alma Connection. There you go. Uh, Polly escapes. Where, and Coco's not even in Paris. And of course, he wasn't there again. Uh, <laughs> Polly escapes with cuts and bruises, but Shirley's neck is severely injured. Oh. Um, but they were scheduled to fly home that weekend, but they'll have to stay until Shirley recovers enough to fly. Mm. Um, there's no more news. After that, Quill turns his attention back to the newly named Homer Tibbet Auditorium and helps plan the dedication. Um, and he is proud of himself for not revealing what he calls the secret of the brown paper bag. Okay. Way, 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 way back in The Cat Who Knew Shakespeare. Homer was very open about having a nip of brandy in the coffee that he would carry when he went to the library for research. However, now, Lillian Jackson Braun claims that he came from a family of teetotalers and liked to carry a mysterious flask filled with amber liquid, and his closest friends never revealed if it was tea or something stronger. Rhoda even never admitted to knowing the secret. So we're just retconning. All um, over the place. Hold on. It gets worse. But later. Oh, God. Um, so Polly is recovering in Paris. Quill uh, begins plans to winterize the barn because now it's getting to be time for him to move time to Indian the, Village, yeah, as he usually does. Miss mm-hmm. Fulgrove, a uh, Mrs. Fulgrove, his longtime cleaner, is going about her work. And she starts noticing that Coco is breaking items that Polly had given Quill. Uh-oh. Um, a, bottle, a, a bottle of aftershave. Uh, Canadian. Um, a figure of a Scottish piper. Um, and then, in full view of Quill, Coco tears the cover of a book of poetry that Quill and Polly enjoyed. So there's suddenly a ton of Polly hate for whatever reason. Interesting. Once again, not explained why. Um, <sighs> Quill then wonders <sighs> about Brutus and Cata, um, Polly's cats, and <laughs> unkindly rationalizes that, you know, they're probably eating better at the pet plaza than they ever did at home, <laughs> referencing Polly's constant dieting since her heart Flat attack back in the cat. And, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Um, so diet food for the cats, too. So that's all from all the way back in The Cat Who Blew the Whistle. Um, but then the real bombshell drops. And this is why I always get the uh, this book confused with the previous one. Because this is a bombshell. Polly has been offered and accepted a three-year contract with a firm in Paris to be a commercial librarian. Is a bombshell. She's told Dr. Connie to find good homes for Brutus and Cata. Mildred will sell her house and her furnishings to benefit the church, not the library. Uh, and she apparently plans to just yes. buy all new things when she returns, claiming that her stuff isn't very good. But that makes me... Qu- you have the Duncan antiques that you've been talking what about. What is going on? That you inherited after Lynette died. Why would... And also, why wouldn't you just rent the condo while you're gone? I mean, Put Airbnb, your stuff in storage. Airbnb wasn't exactly a thing back then, but you but could you have figured this out. There were firms that did this. There were plenty of firms that could have said, okay, we will, you know, the finding a new home for your cat, that I understand. You're going to be gone for three years, um, which is concerning to me that your cats were not a priority. How much did you really love your cats? But the condo, the condo is property. The condo, mm-hmm. is, the condo is financial gain. You that could is, be earning extra money. Right, that is income. By you renting have that, that. You have that there at the end of three years. You don't have to work for a couple of years, or you can retire, whichever. Yeah, you know, you could just eat. renting your condo. Honestly, would mean that you could decide to stay in Paris indefinitely. Pretty which much feels like how this is going to be led to. But again, we don't know. We don't know. Um, Quill claims that this is his first dear John letter, which, <laughs> by the way. We know isn't true because Alacoque Wright definitely sent him one after the cat who ate Danish modern um, before as he's going into Junktown with a cat who turned on and off. Um, so we know that mm-hmm. he's received Dear John letters. We've also got one from Rosemary after the cat who played Brahms. Yeah, he's had his share of Dear John letters. He just hasn't had to deal with it for years because he's been dating Polly with no commitments. Well, and that's going belly up. Yeah, Ben. And then we find out that Polly has already apparently notified everyone, including sending news releases to the Moose County something and the Lockmaster Ledger. But she didn't tell Quill. She didn't tell Quill. What? Did not tell Quill. Um, wow. Quill is the unpleasant sort uh, is the unpleasant source of this gossip, so he ends up hiding out at the barn for a bit. Um, her unit is cleared and sold to a newcomer, which is Barb Honninger who is an attorney that Quill likes. Um, she seems like a nice enough person, and she moves in with her cat, Molasses. 
<laughs> uh, Quill and Mildred arrange a welcome party with a four-course meal catered by the Macintosh Inn, which, by the way, is a giant step up from the con- you, from the pizza party they used to welcome Dr. Connie. Uh, apparently, when you're an attorney, you, you get catering. Um, if you're anybody else, you just get pizza. Yep. <laughs> and you'll after, like it. After the party, Quill chats with Joe, who mentions that he has his piano tuned by Frankie, and Frankie's girlfriend was the bee sting death, which we know. Uh, and then all of a sudden... Coco sounds his death howl again, and Quill hangs up the phone to learn why. Mm-mm. Never quite learn why. Um, but first, because, and the reason we don't is because we get a call from Rhoda Tibbet. She has solved the mystery of the brown paper bag. She found two flasks in the pockets of Homer's old suits, which she was getting ready to donate. And when she tasted the contents, it turns out to be strong black tea. Quill instructs her to tell no one, suggests uh, they open a cafe at the community center to be named the Homer Tibbet Tea Room as an inside joke for the two of them. Side note, ew! While whiskey or brandy would survive just fine in a flask for a few years, Homer hasn't gone out with these flasks in at least a decade, so she just tasted 10-year-old moldy tea. Ew! Why do you think it was so strong? Ew. I'm not saying... I'm not defending this... It, just go with the drunk. No, just, just, just go with the thing. Just that he let was him drunk. be drunk. Let him let him have his brandy. It no, no, really no. would not be that scandalous. No, it would not. So this no, is her geez. lovely little retcon. It would have been much more fun to just let him have his brandy. Yeah. Um. Anyway, after this, Quill visits Daisy in her new office at the community center, and there is a list on her wall of all the projects that are currently in progress. We have the Senior Health Club, which is going to open the following year, even with the setbacks of the building being exploded. Um, The Wildlife Museum, the building is finished. Exhibits are being moved in. It's expected to open in the next six months. And then there's Cats the Musical in rehearsal. Hooray. Um, Quill then comments on a photo of the Leadfields on her desk, and they discuss their incredible efforts on behalf of the Orphans of Pickaxe, because this is now starting to sound like a Dickens novel. Have you Um, got a hay penny, sir? (laughs) This then leads to a discussion of Danny, the adopted son of Hannah and Louis McLeod, but Daisy's comments about how it's amazing what they've done with that orphan feel (sighs) awkward. Wow. Um, Dude, he was adopted when his mother killed herself after her father, after his father abandoned them. Um, So he was lucky enough to find his way into a house with two people who absolutely adore him. So they've done, you know, they haven't done so much good work as given a child a loving home. Can we focus on that? Anyway. Um, Daisy then arranges uh, to drop Frankie off at the barn since Libby passed on. Daisy is now doing a lot of Frankie's driving. So this way Quill can interview him about piano tuning. Um, Quill doesn't bother to tell her that he's decided against the column, but he's nosy and he really (laughs) won't turn down an opportunity to interview someone at the center of local gossip. Um, Plus, apparently Frankie will bring his portable keyboard so Quill can hear what piano music sounds like at the barn without moving in a grand piano. Mm. Um, So over dinner, at least Quill feeds him dinner, um, Frankie and Quill talk. They find out that Frankie is very, very angry at Libby for going out without her kit because he feels that she's not only ruined, as he puts it, her own life, um, but his as well. Hmm. Which is an odd reaction that, to somebody's death. That is. Your death so ruined I, my life. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's um, his inability to really process death. Um, or something or else just, is going or on. Or something else is going on. We don't know. We'll never find out. Um, he's, ex- he's upset enough after this conversation that he ends up not being able to play at the rehearsal. Um, Hannah ends up subbing for him why they just don't have Hannah do it in the first place. I never understood. Um <laughs> And Daisy calls to see what's happened because he was so upset and they make plans to discuss it in person. Um, something feels very off to Quill about Frankie and Libby's death. Uh, about Frankie and then Libby's death. There's a concern that the death will affect public response to the old manse, um, which I guess is fair. So what comes out of this conversation is that Quill decides that he's tired of living in a show place and feeling obligated to share it with the community. Um, so he wants to get out of the barn a little bit early. Um, so he's been moving to Indian Village progressively earlier and earlier in the past books because, you know, the barn is hard. The barn is impossible to heat. It's very hard to plow, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Many um, reasons, many reasons. Many reasons he's just not ready to live. He just doesn't want to live in the barn anymore. His neighbors stop by to welcome him back. Coco drops from above. Uh, <laughs> this, they, they all come to the barn to welcome and to say to welcome him back. So from this point... Um, so Coco is dropping from the balcony like he did in the uh, Cat Dropped a Bombshell. Mm-hmm. And he startles Dr. Connie and Barb um, while Quill and Joe try to keep a straight face. 
Um, there's a poem about a new handyman whose name is Ben Quill. I didn't even write it down. It really wasn't that good. Um, and then Quill kills the mood by telling the bloody history of the barn. Suddenly, everyone has to go home and feed their cats. And <laughs> we left the cat out. <laughs> Afterward, Quill then plays Barb's uh, welcome home gift of a jazz recording for the cats. They approve. That's nice. Um, and the next day, Quill makes his official move for a planned six months. All right, then. Um, wow. Settles in, gets a call from Daisy. Something is wrong at the office. He then heads to the community center in the morning, and Daisy's office looks like the box bank for the manse. Um, she's unpacking her office from the manse and discovers in all the things that were packed up for her, Libby's missing bee kit is among them. Oh. It looks like someone removed it from Libby's jacket and then tried to plant it on Daisy. Quill calls Bart, and they start to wonder. Did Libby try to accuse Alma of stealing and then died as a result? He starts to realize there are a lot of things that point to Alma. Um, Coco's dislike of her, his fascination apparently with Henry James' portrait of a lady. They didn't actually mention this. Um, uh, the destruction of Alma's catalog and even Polly's accident, as I mentioned, at the Pont d'Alma. Mm-hmm. And so Quill sees Bart a few hours later and with a shake of his head, it's the purple point scandal. Alma was indeed skimming money off the top. Libby caught her. And it's very likely that Alma killed her as a result. Hmm. But it should be mentioned, none of this is actually stated. It's just very, very obliquely referenced. So Jeez. all of this is stuff that I'm inferring it's, based on the information here. But there's nothing actually saying this is what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. Meanwhile, we have Quill seeing more of Barb, and it's very clearly a better fit than Polly. Um, her taste in furniture is modern with meaningful antique touches. She has a sly sense of humor. Um, and... I kind of like this. When the ladies offer to provide dinner before the four people go to ca see cats, she asks if cat food would be appropriate. Cute. <laughs> um, I like the sense of humor. But on the way home uh, from, their from the production of cats, which they all said was perfectly adequate, um, they pass fire trucks. Joe calls the radio station. Uh-oh. And what he hears over the phone, which is, of course, on speaker, is your friend's barn is on fire. Oh, no. Your friend's barn is on fire. Arson is very much suspected, but somebody has set the barn on fire. Thank oh. God he moved. Yes. Um, Barbara starts to wonder if it's the same gang from Bixby that bombed City Hall and burned the, the senior center. And Quill is very outwardly composed. He's inwardly shocked, but it's, it, 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 he, it's just too much to take in. The cats end up sleeping in his bed that night to comfort him, and he's very grateful that they moved earlier than they planned. Absolutely. Um... There's a note that Andy has news to share, but we never find out what it is. There's a call from Daisy reporting that Alma and a group from Lockmasters from Lockmaster were spotted pulling away from the old manse with car loads full of Leadfield treasures. So she's gone from stealing money to just obliquely just stealing shit. Right out in the open. Um, they pulled away from the old manse. Um, the city is in shock with the loss of the barn and the loss of the treasures from the manse. Kip claims that what's wrong with Bixby County is that indoor cats are apparently prohibited by law. Huh. That's a bit of a flex. Um, no one is caught. No one is arrested. The story ends with Quill writing a limerick about Barb's cat molasses. And that is how and the curtain falls it. for the last time on Moose County. Yep. Wow. Wow. This is like, okay, this is at the end. I referred to Game of Thrones before, but now it feels <laughs> like, okay, you've got Danny crossing the narrow sea from Essos into Westeros. We've been waiting for this moment forever. She's with Tyrion. She's with Varys. She is with Yara. She is with Lady... Like, they have this badass alliance. That's how it ends. No follow-up. That's it. Like, they were setting up for so much. Oh, man. Yeah. And they had the manuscript. Like, this, the, the story was written to at least maybe if not have a satisfying ending at least have an ending but it and I, I, no one knows where and no one knows it, it was just canceled it was just canceled um so a couple of things that popped up in this book <laughs> um, that were entertaining there have been many many discussions about how coco likes to know the hand that feeds him but apparently, despite this, Quill got him an automatic feeder and is somehow surprised that Coco refused to eat from it. I thought that was funny. <laughs> um, we, we've kind of gone over our, our, our surprise and rage about Polly. I cannot say that I'm sorry to see her go. I don't know. But I, this setup is no, just so disappointing, especially since she's leaving Bruda and Caddis behind without a second thought for three years. I mean, you could on this feels like if this was done maybe two or three books before, it would have a bit more of an impact. Yeah. 
And maybe there were supposed to be two or three more books, but we don't know. Um, you know, starting with The Cat Who Went Bananas, Lily and Jackson Brown started building towards something. There were mysteries that were left unsolved or solved with death and then bombing started. And maybe this was meant to be, there was meant to be a grand finale in The Cat Who Smelled Smoke, but we'll never know. It's just those Bixby bums for whatever reason. <laughs> Clearly times are changing in pickaxe and I'm sure the idea of Quilly, burning Quill's barn was meant to be like the last straw before that became the ideal community and they they banded together to beat these guys. Um, I, I would Jeez. like to say that in our retrospective um, that we're planning for our next uh, for our next episode. Um, I've got some fan theories. I've got some explanations. <laughs> I would hope so. Um, there are, if not explanations, I've got some really good ideas. Um, all of these things. This um, is, man, I can only imagine just being a fan of this series, especially for some people. Like I think of my grandmother who was with the, the books from the very beginning. Yeah. Had every one of them in their original paperback. And then this... And this is how it ends. Yeah, this is just what happens. I mean, Paul rating-wise, I gave it a two because, once again, there is so much potential. Alma doesn't even get caught. once. She only gets one scene. Now, granted, it's an impressive scene because there it, it was really impressive to cram that many hated traits into a couple of pages. Jeez. Um, she really is just that horrible. Um, but we never learn what happens to her. I hope it's in keeping with denying someone necessary medication that would have meant the difference between life and death and then trying to frame someone else for it so that she gets a really good punishment. But who knows? We, ne we, we won't. We won't. We don't know. <laughs> we will not know. This is. So bad. I would like to say, um, you know, usually we're sitting around with with a beer or a glass of wine while we do these podcasts. But for today, um, <laughs> there is a tradition from my ex-mother-in-law that when the Thanksgiving turkey was completed, um, she would do a shot over the bird with anybody who was in the kitchen. And so to celebrate this <laughs> giant turkey that we've just landed. This is a golden turkey if there ever was one. <laughs> uh, I, am, uh, I am describing Luke and I raising our glasses of bourbon mm -hmm. to toast Beef. 29 books, 20? almost 50 years of writing Jeez. of the cat who, and this is how it ends. You're going to need a double shot for this, probably. Cheers to that. <laughs> But wow. for now, we'll talk more next. We'll talk more in the next one. On the next one, we'll have a nice retrospective where we will talk about the series, favorite books, restaurants, characters, and fan theories, which I am very curious to Absolutely. hear what you come up with. So, to that I say, cheers. So join us next time for the cat who did a podcast, the retrospective. I'm Susan Romsdorf Terry. And I'm Luke Romsdorf Terry. And until next time, happy sleuthing. And stay nosy, my friends. Yeah.